There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. Hello, this is Brett. Welcome back to the Essential School Sucks. This is number five how schools crush creativity and critical thinking. Now, I'm gonna be swift here because everything is explained in my original monologue to this show. By the way, some production notes, I recorded this show in New Hampshire in a closet filled with clothes on a Zoom recorder because I was away from my studio for a couple of days. Then I released it in Connecticut and then you'll hear me say this in the monologue, I drove to Pittsburgh to visit and now that's where I live. Back then, it was just an exotic place that I was going to visit for a couple weeks, but now it is my home. I'm looking out my window right now, and there is Pittsburgh. I can only see a tree, but it's in Pittsburgh. So that was cool to hear that when I listened back to this. So the my audio quality is not terrific, and Peter's isn't either, but there was no way we could do this collection without including Peter Gray's voice. Peter Gray is one of the most respected and celebrated people on the self-directed education scene. He has a blog on psychology today called Free to Learn. If you are at the beginning stage of understanding the philosophy of learning and the educational alternatives to public school, you really want to know the name and the work of Peter Gray. Now. Also a production note, the feedback that I've gotten is every other day is better than every day (laughs) as far as releasing these shows are concerned. So that means this whole project takes 100 days instead of 50, but that's fine with me. And the final production note, you will hear me say in the monologue, this is part two of three in a Peter Gray week. We had a very, very long conversation. I stood in that closet for three hours uh, back at the beginning of 2018 and I was just mesmerized. So I released it in three parts. Parts one and three are now bonus content, but if you wanna hear the whole thing and you support us on Patreon, just click the links that I put in the show notes and it should take you right there and you can listen. And if you wanna learn more about how you can support us, stay tuned after the show. For now, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this. And if this is the first thing you're hearing, I would definitely recommend starting at the beginning. There is a logic to uh, this collection. We are currently exploring the pre-existing problems, the foundation of problems that already existed before, you know, 2020 came and many new people really started to look at the schools with a critical eye. So we're laying groundwork and we are going to return to the history. I've got some treats in that department for you coming very soon. Oh, one more thing. On the day this is released, I will be arriving in Austin, Texas. This is me way in the past. Not as far back in the past as what you're about to hear, but this is several days before the show's release. So if you're listening to this Saturday, I'm arriving in Austin, Texas. Now, just about everybody I know lives in Austin, Texas, but I'll be in Austin Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday morning. Gotta fly out on Tuesday with my sweet and stunning partner, Gabriella. If you wanna meet up, email me, brett at schoolsucksproject.com. I'll try to be attentive to that, and I'll try to include you uh, in whatever we get into down in Austin. All right, you are listening to The Essential School Sucks number five, originally released February 13th. Happy Valentine's Day, 2018, as episode 543, Peter Gray, 
school's impact on creativity and critical thinking. Here we go. When the world thinks about protecting children, it seems like a lot of adults think we mostly need protection from ourselves. I keep hearing adults say that the world is a scary, broken place, and I know my family protects me from a lot of scary things, but my mind isn't one of those scary, broken things. I imagine that even though I need protecting, I also need to learn how to make decisions that I can live with, and decisions that bring me closer to the goals I set for myself. And don't worry, this isn't me complaining about why I hate school, even though that point is pretty good too. This is about my right as a child to be truly involved in the decisions that have to do with what I learn and how I learn it. Many adults see children like a blank slate, a coding sandbox, if you will, that can be filled with any command adults see fit, especially when it comes to learning. And even though adults live with us, most of them still believe that we don't start learning until we go to school. Even though you watch us learn how to walk without being taught, and even though you're constantly astonished by our capacity to understand and apply information really early on in our lives, you adults still believe that the best way for us to learn is to put us in groups inside classes, tell us what to learn, for how long, and then force us to show you that we've learned through testing. As time goes on, a simulated environment starts taking priority over our natural learning process. Eventually, adults successfully transition children from our spirit of inquiry to something that makes more sense to you and far less sense to me. Then, when I do what I'm intended to do, which is to follow my interests while resisting pressure to sit still and fall in line, you call it misbehaving, and we get punished for not showing up in ways that are more convenient for the adults around us. Suddenly, we hold the responsibility of getting smart, getting jobs our parents want to brag about, and becoming an asset that makes people proud. Making people proud is cool and all, but I need to be able to say that I truly am proud of myself, and that I understand what I need in order to achieve my life goals, not yours. I, like all children, deserve to practice being in charge of my own life. And I get that I can't be in charge of all of it now, and I don't want to be. But I do feel ready to be in charge of my learning, which just means that my opinion should influence my parents' decision on anything that has to do with what I learn and how I learn it. My choice, their support. My ideas, their ability to help me find resources. And you know something? That design may or may not include school, but the point is that I'm an active participant in that decision. And when I am unruly, it may just be because your rules force me to make myself smaller and to fit into what you need, which leaves me feeling like I have no choices, no power. And when people feel powerless, some of them push back. And that pushback is often an opportunity to learn what's happening with a child, not an opportunity to punish them so that they don't express their feelings the next time they feel that way. The notion that children are unable to develop useful skills in life without adults dictating every move is absurd. I am a person, not a chess piece, not an end result, not an experiment that a system should have access to. I am to be valued, not to be devalued by having things built upon me without my permission, much less my input. Maybe we need protection from scary broken ideas of how we should behave and what we should learn. And maybe, if we acted like teammates instead of rivals vying for high test scores and our teachers' attention, we could show more adults that self-directed education the kind that centers people and not scores, is a really great way for children and their parents to live together. Hey everybody, this is Brett. Welcome back to the show. How's your Peter Gray week going? Mine totally rules. I'm down in the Hartford, Connecticut area. I came down to see my dear friends, Rich and Lisa. We've been working on a couple of projects. We've been having some amazing conversations that unfortunately no one else will ever get to hear unless we have them again and record them, but we're pretty busy. So this is part two of three conversations with Peter Gray. If you missed part one, I recommend you go back to that. 
Peter is a research professor of psychology at Boston College. He's the author of Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant, and Better Students for Life. He also serves on the organizing team for the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. And, of course, he runs a blog on Psychology Today called Freedom to Learn. We're going to talk about a couple entries from Freedom to Learn in our conversation today. Speaking of the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, I opened the show with a video called Trusting Children to Learn. That is from their YouTube channel. You can also learn more about the Alliance at self-directed.org. Today on the show, Peter and I discuss creativity and critical thinking, two skills we agree are left underdeveloped and even damaged by public school and college. On critical thinking, Peter has in the past on his blog referenced studies and surveys that reveal about 50% of employers are dissatisfied with entry-level college graduate employees, and the college does very little to improve higher-level thinking. We'll talk about that. And on the topic of creativity, Peter wrote a piece a while back called As Children's Freedom Has Declined, we're talking over the last couple decades, so has their creativity. In that piece, Peter talks about a quantitative study, the Torrance Test of Creative Thinking. We'll talk about what that means and what he thinks the causes are for this decline since the 1980s. Some announcements. Folks, I'm going to be away from New Hampshire for the next few weeks. I'm actually on my way to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's where one of my best friends, Andrew, lives. I'm going to go spend a couple of weeks with him. And of course, if you're a School Sucks listener and you're in Pittsburgh, I had a conversation with Zach Slayback, formerly of Praxis, past guest on the show, I think last Thursday. And he said, yeah, there's definitely a good group of listeners out here. I could put together a pretty decent sized meetup in that. So when I was there before in October, it was kind of short notice. I did throw something up on Facebook like, hey, I'll be dining in the city tonight if you want to join us for some dining. And a listener named Nick came. He brought his girlfriend. But I'd love an opportunity to meet more of you folks in Pittsburgh. And I'll be there until the end of February before I turn around and start making the long trek back. So feel free to hit me up at brett at schoolsucksproject.com or on Facebook. And we'll meet. You better believe it. I've got a proven track record of going places and meeting people. So looking forward to that. All right. That's it for today. Here's the second part of my conversation with Peter Gray. I'll talk to you again on Friday from nine hours west of my current location. I hope you're having a good week. I wanted to get your thoughts on two skills left underdeveloped by the current system, because our ultimate goal in this show is to talk about education's future. First is critical thinking. Most people believe that college is supposed to be, optimistically speaking, an enhancement, but probably more realistically speaking, a kind of corrective for some of the failures in K through 12 education to teach critical thinking. You've talked about how there's actually, you know, studies that are coming forward that are not backing this claim up, you know, that colleges teach critical thinking. You mentioned a study by Payscale Incorporated that 50 yeah. percent, at least 50 percent of employers are complaining that college graduates, not high school graduates, but college graduates are ill equipped to think critically in the workplace. And I know you talked about another piece called Academically Adrift. It's probably seven or eight years old at this point. Limited learning on college campuses was the subtitle. So first of all, I'd just like to hear you weigh in on on the college situation and the failure to, I mean, and I guess it's an extension of the K through 12 system. Critical thinking is not one of the outcomes of this system. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, we definitely, um, you know, one of the struggles that I had for, it's been many years since I've taught, but I, for 30 years, was a college professor um, teaching regular classes, introductory psychology, and many other courses. Um, And my big struggle always was, how can I teach in such a way as to foster critical thinking? Because it's you know, any any college professor who's paying any attention to what's going on has any concern at all about what what children, what young people are learning in college um, is struck by the lack of critical thinking. Mm. And you know that these 
young people are capable of it. I mean, they're capable of thinking. And it's very clear that they're coming to college with critical thinking just drilled out of them. You know, you know, any kind of world in which you are being evaluated and judged is um, is going to, in some ways, suppress critical thinking because your although maybe it's a certain kind of critical thinking, your whole thinking gets oriented towards what is it that this teacher wants me to say, right, right, <laughs> so that I can get an A here. <laughs> Now, for the most part, uh, it's pretty simple. All you have to do is feed back what the teacher gave you, <laughs> you know, yeah. whether feeding back what the textbook said, memorizing it, feeding it back, or what you heard in lecture. And so most students come off, come to college believing that this is what education is all about. You just you get the, the teacher tell, it's basically a deal that goes like this. The teacher tells you what's going to be on the test. <laughs> you learn it, and then you give it back on the test. Yeah. There's no critical thinking there at all, right? It's just, uh, and, and, and everybody knows there isn't. <laughs> and that's the way, that's pretty much the way high school works. And unfortunately, that's pretty much the way many college classes work, courses work. Yes, yeah. And I think that many, I think that that's more true of college courses today, even than it was in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of the reason that's true, in the past, um, you know, there's both good things and bad things about this. But even sort of when I was a college student in the 1960s, professors in some sense, there was more critical thinking because professors were less conscientious than they are today in a certain sense. Mm. So the, I had professors who just were, they didn't really prepare lectures or sometimes they didn't even show up for lectures. <laughs> right. you know? and, uh, and then I'd be given a test at the end of the year or I'd have to write a term paper and they didn't tell us what how to write a term paper or, you know, what, what exactly it should be about. Uh, they didn't give us uh, opportunities to write drafts and to get criticized, critiqued on it as students expect today. So you had to kind of be a little more creative. You had to say, all right, well, what, what am I going to do here? <laughs> you know, mm. how am I going to impress this person that I don't even know? Right. And I don't even know what he's looking for. <laughs> so it, it, I think there was more, in some odd sense, a more opportunity for creativity in that kind of a situation you need to figure things out uh, than there is today. So today, students are coming in more or less demanding of professors that they treat them the way their high school teachers did. They want to know exactly what's going to be on the test. <laughs> yeah, Otherwise, sure. it's not fair. And if you're going to ask them to write a paper, you better tell them what kind of paper you want, what the topic should be on. You better give them drafts and so on. Now, I, I don't blame the students for this. I don't, you know, we've set it up this way. If we're, if we're grading students and if that damn grade is so important, uh, it's kind of unfair if we don't tell them exactly what they have to do to get the grade. I can, I see that. I can see the, the student's point of view on that, right? <laughs> you know. Yeah. So really, it's the grading system that that prevents all of this from occurring. You've either got kind of got a sloppy system, like when I was a student, and be, and the sheer sloppiness of it allowed for situations where we could be more creative. But it was also a time when grades didn't really matter as much to people as they do today mm. you know that there there was this notion of the gentlemanly c right you know, <laughs> you know? Right. kind of if you got an a you were a little embarrassed about it yeah, <laughs> you, know? Yeah. <laughs> you know and we spent a lot of time just sort of in bull sessions about politics and so on um at the college i went to so there's an interesting question right there, though, because that actually seems to be one of the things that might be causing the the problem. Because there's like, I guess, maybe so much media or social media attention on college campuses, and they've been hotbeds over the last few years for various types of political or social issues disputes. Some people have said this isn't a place where debate can really take place constructively anymore. And I've also heard a lot of stories you know, college professors who 
work in certain disciplines aren't really encouraging students to debate or push back or have their own ideas. You know, they're presenting certain things as if they are the truth, as if this is the only right. rational or responsible way to feel about certain things. And, you know, it's it, there's kind of a symbiotic relationship there because maybe... Yeah, I know it would be really cynical to think that it would be a majority of people teaching in college just want to use students as kind of like, you know, who's the fairest of them all mirrors to have their, you know, ideas parroted back to them. Like, that's very cynical. And I don't I don't want to believe that. But if there are people who who do think like that or not even in, you know, (laughs) in a nefarious way, like I'm going to use these students to feel better about myself, just if that might be you know, a kind of natural outcome of living somewhat unconsciously in that kind of environment year after year, having students come to you that way who are being fed to you from the public school that basically sets that expectation in their minds for them. These people will tell you how to think and feel. It it almost kind of like would remove some of the blame from from college professors because they are just basically catering to the student's needs that they come there with after public school. Right. I mean, ironically, I think one of the things that has, if I can use this word, cheapened the Mm. college education, uh, the formal evaluation of professors by students. Mm. Everybody wants to get a good evaluation. Students want to get a good evaluation. The faculty want to get a good evaluation from the students, right? So, and also everybody kind of wants their life to be relatively easy. Nobody wants to work really hard. So, you know, that's, uh, this is human nature, right? So Mm. uh, the easy thing to do for professors is um, to give to students what they think that the professor is supposed to do, which is to tell them the answers to the test questions, right? Mm, Right. (laughs) And, And then to give the students an A when they give the right answers. And in some sense, the easy thing, you know, so, so, so then, the, so then it becomes, and also if you're going to start challenging um, people's cherished beliefs in one way or another as a professor, then you're going to kind of get into, um, you might get into difficult grounds. You might, um, you, in this day and age, or, you know, might be protested against by, you know, some of the students. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so these things work against uh, real intellectual environment. I don't want to say that it doesn't occur, and I don't want to, and it's certainly, you know, real intellectual exchange does occur still mm-hmm. in the university, absolutely. It occurs among students, it occurs among faculty, it occurs between faculty and students. But there are so many pressures working against it, and it's really ultimately, in my mind, again, this comes back to the problem of grading. As long as, if, as long as ultimately I am giving you a grade, it's hard to get around the idea that your job is to give me the answer that you think I'm looking for, (laughs) you know, (laughs) as opposed to, you know, now presumably a good professor ought to be, and and many are, I don't want to say that this doesn't exist, ought to be really open and and in some sense really pleased by that student who's challenging the professor's ideas and mm. who challenges it well and who prevents a well-constructed argument and so on. And I don't want to say that doesn't exist, but first of all, when you're dealing with students who's for whom that's sort of been already trained out of them, so it's a rare thing to occur in the first place, and then it's it's kind of easier for you not to set up the conditions that that establish that. Then you know you're just not you're not pre- you're not uh, fostering it. The other thing that's happened, and there's been a lot written about this. This kind of happened since I retired from teaching. So what, these are more secondhand stories to me, but I've heard of, enough of it to um, to think there's something to it. That increasingly. Um, You know, we've been raising children, we've been overprotecting children Mm -hmm. as they grow, and we've been protecting them from physical danger, but also from emotional danger, right? Emotional safety has become a big thing. We we don't want our children to have to experience failure. Uh, We don't want them to have to experience, um, you know, losses, hurts of all sorts. And we don't want to have 
to even have them experience the distress of disturbing, disturbing ideas. So we try to protect them from this. And when we protect children from playing out on their own, where they're likely to run into all of these things and have to deal with them, right. we prevent them from learning these things. So, so what has happened now is that many students are apparently, well, first of all, what's clearly happening, this is well-documented, there's an enormous un amount of emotional breakdown among college students. This has been increasing rapidly in recent decades, but especially within the last decade or two. Mental health centers in universities are overrun with students who are having emotional breakdowns for one reason or another. And they're having emotional breakdowns about all kinds of things that in the past, yeah, these are troubling things, but the expectation is that you would be able to solve these kind of on your own or right. with your friends, you know, whether it's a romantic breakup or you're not getting along with your roommate or uh, you've um, gotten a bad grade or whatever it is, find some way to deal with it. Now you have an emotional crisis about it and much more frequently in the past than in the past. Mm, yeah, Jonathan Hyde has actually talked a lot about this. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with some of his work. I I am, and yeah. in fact, uh, we're beginning to collaborate on some projects through the Let Grow Foundation. So he's written about this idea that that universities are beginning to see it as necessary, supposedly, to protect young people from ideas that are emotionally disturbing to them or from words that are emotionally disturbing to them. Right. So this phenomenon of trigger warnings and the idea that you can't have controversial speakers on campus because people are going to be emotionally upset. You know, it's one thing to say, yeah, this is a person whose ideas I think are absolutely crazy or abs or even evil, you know, mm -hmm. but let's have him speak and let's confront those ideas. Let's hear, let's, you know, let's, you know, we're a nation of free speech. Speech shouldn't, speech should not be, hurting me. Speech should be something that's uh, that I'm listening to. I'm learning something from it, but I'm also thinking critically about it and responding in a critical and intellectual way to it. That's what should be happening on college campuses. But what is happening is it just tears me apart that you would even think of allowing this person to speak on my campus. And therefore, therefore there have been increasing numbers of controversial speakers uh, being disinvited from speaking on campuses. So that's sure. another kind of anti-intellectual trend <laughs> on campuses that has to do with a greater concern for comfort, presumably, than with, um, uh, than with intellectual um, uh, debate. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really kind of unfortunate collision for this generation that's in college right now because you know, and, and we've talked about this over the last few minutes, it's a kind of intellectual comfort that grows out of school to say, look, just tell me what to do or just tell me how to feel or just tell me what I need to do to push through this. Like, I associate work with pain and boredom, so tell me just the fastest route through that thing so I can be done. And right. I think that creates an aversion to wrestling with difficult ideas or having to sit uncomfortably in uncertainty. But then also, I mean, you and I, we're 30 years apart in age, but we both remember playing in situations with peers where there was no adult anywhere to be found, right? And kids Absolutely. today have never experienced that. There is always an adult looming overhead and there to stop some of these emotional or social difficulties before the kids even get a chance to try and, right. you know, solve them for themselves. So, you know, that's all kind of coming to a head. That collision is happening with this generation. And higher education right now is just kind of a stage where that is unfortunately taking place. That's, that's well said. You know, it's in, when you think about, when I think about my childhood play, I mean, from, from the age of five or six on, I was able to play out on my own and with other kids away from right. any adults. Mm -hmm. And, Boy, you know, you go through, it's not all fun, right? As you go through some hard times, you right. go through, you get bullied, you know, you get, you get lost and you get frightened because you're lost. This is before cell phones, yep. you know, yep. you, 
you um, you get rejected. You know, we don't want to play with you. My best friend, previously my best friend, suddenly doesn't want to play with me anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I you get you you go through. It's not all you know. It's play is fun, but it's not. But but being out there, it's not all fun. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of learning how to deal with disappointment, mm-hmm. <laughs> with fear, with with and and that's part of growing up and um today we have and also and but what you learn is you learn i can do it i can deal with it i can i can get lost and i can find my way home <laughs> you know i right. can i can uh, get bullied and i can figure out what to do about that bully one way or another if it means just staying away from him that's what i do but maybe it means confronting him in some way you know, confronting, you know, and figuring out how to how to live with this person. Um, so so these are lessons that when we deprive children of this opportunity, um, they are not uh, able to learn. So and, they, and these can't be these are things that can't be taught. They can only be learned from the practice, from experience. The other thing that we do at today's, which I have mixed feelings about, there's good things and bad things about it, is that we have this tendency to. Um, Tell children that if you, ever you have a problem, go to an adult, to some <laughs> right, authority yeah, figure yeah. to solve the problem. Whenever somebody's teasing you, go talk to an adult about it. You know what? You're feeling a little depressed, go talk to an adult about it. Whatever it is, the way you're supposed to solve the problem is find some adult authority figure who knows so much more than you do, who's going to be able to help you solve that problem. Now, I think there is something good about that. I think when I was a kid, maybe some of us held our pain too much to ourselves. We are, were ashamed of our pains, Agreed. you know, and yep. so on. Yep. And it would have been nice maybe if we had parents who said, you know, talk to me about, about what you're feeling. And so on. maybe, I don't know. I, but, you know, most of us at that time grew up thinking we've got to, we got to deal with our pain more or less ourselves and figure it out. And, um, but now I think we go too far in the other direction. And, and so the first instinct too often is to say, oh, I've got to go and talk to an authority figure. And I think that's part of why the mental health centers are overwhelmed. So I've got a problem with my roommate instead of thinking, I can solve this problem with my roommate. I can confront my roommate about it, or we can deal with this as a realistic problem rather than an emotional problem, and maybe go and talk to the people who assign roommates to figure mm. out that we maybe shouldn't be living together anymore, whatever it is, but think of it as a problem, a realistic problem to be solved in one way or another, <clears throat> instead of thinking of it as an emotional problem that I have to now go and talk to a, a psychologist about right. how to deal with this emotionally. So that's, uh, I think that that we've we've we have maybe for all for good intentions. I mean, all overprotection of children is for good intentions, mm. <laughs> but it has led to um, um, a group of young adults now who are, um, in many cases, not able to solve the, the the problems of the inevitable problems of life that yeah. come up and are having emotional problems as a result of that. So we're talking about problem solving more generally here. And I introduced all of this by saying that there's, you know, two really troubling deficiencies that the current schooling system produces. The first was critical thinking. There's, a, I think, a good segue here into the second one. You wrote a piece a while back. It was called As Children's Freedom Has Declined, which is what we're talking about. So has their creativity, right? And what makes up problem solving skills, whether it's, you know, intellectual, social, or emotional, I think critical thinking is a part of it and sort of a a self-management, an emotional management that has a critical thinking component to it, but also, you know, creativity, the ability right. to think and solve problems. So I just wanted to touch on this before we actually finish up today with your vision of a system of the future. But what I found interesting is that there are actually quantitative studies now on, or I, I guess they've existed for a while. I'm just hearing about them. They came through the College of William and Mary and something called the Torrance Tests of Creative Thinking. It was something that was done over a series of decades but there was a marked decline <laughs> at the time that I actually started elementary school in 1984. 
Um, uh-huh. They started to decline and they've continued to decline as far as like a, a creativity index. Creativity has never been more important than it is today. Right? Right, we right. really live at a time where uh, robots and uh, search engines can do all the non-creative stuff more or less, right? Mm. But not, not entirely, that's not entirely true, but it's uh, becoming more and more true. And so the kinds of things that we still need people for, we need to hire people for, are creative things. That, you know, we don't need people who can answer questions for which the answer is already known somewhere. We can just Google the answer, right? And right. we don't need people to be able to be good at mathematical calculation. You know, we've got computers to do all that. We don't need people to uh, do assembly line re- work. We, we've got robots to do that kind of stuff. We need people who can ask questions that nobody's ever thought of before and answer mm. those questions. We need people who can uh, can figure out new ways of doing things, can invent new things, can found new companies. You no longer can depend on having a career for the rest of your life where you're going to be doing the same routine thing your whole life, whether that was ever a good thing or not a good thing, but there was a certain comfort in it. You know, you belong to a labor union, you were going to do that job all your life. There was some loyalty from the company or if not that, the labor, the union protected your job. We don't have that anymore. We've got a world for better or worse where you more or less have to be creative throughout your whole life. You you have to be able to roll with the punches, figure out the new things, learn new things and figure out and figure out creative ways to make a living in right. this day and age. So, given that, it was really quite startling to know that as the world has changed such that creativity is ever more valued and necessary, our graduate, our students are becoming ever less creative. And how do we know that? It it was a little bit of a revelation to me to discover that there actually is a valid assessment of creativity. I mean, how can you test for creativity? You'd think if there's anything you can't test for, it's creativity, right? Yeah, sure. But indeed, there is this battery of tests uh, called Torrance's Test of Creative Thinking, Uh, developed initially, you know, way back after uh, World War, around the time of World War II, um, Torrance was trying to understand um, the create the creative thinking that went into those sort of war heroes who did really creative things, and he began to think about creativity and how important it is, and what's involved in creativity, and can you assess for creativity? And he developed this battery of of tests for creative thinking, and um, and it turns out that it's a valid test um, in this sense. We there are this has been done over a long enough period of time, and with a large enough numbers of school-age children, normative groups of school-age children, that there have been follow-up studies, mm. and those those people who, as children, score high on this test are far more likely as adults to do actual real world creative things <laughs> mm. than those children who scored lower, even if you match for everything else. So they're, uh, they're more likely to start new companies, invent new things, uh, write novels, uh, create plays, uh, the, the whole realm of things that we think of as creative uh, achievements to the culture. Uh, this, uh, the researchers who do this work have reported, and I, I've read some of the review articles on it, that this is the best measure that we have of future real-world creative production. Way better than, um, better than IQ. Mm-hmm. Uh, way better than um, than uh, grade point average in school, which is hardly a predictor at all. Sure. Uh, better than teachers' guesses as to who's going to be creatively productive later on, better than peer guesses as to that. Best predictor that we have of it. And yet, and 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 this has been going down um, significantly, and in some cases, for some of the subtests in this battery of tests, quite uh, quite large effect, 
quite large effect. In fact, the one that went down the most went down by a full standard deviation. And what that basically means, if you another way of saying that, is that at least on that test of creative thinking, 85% of school-age children today are less creative than the average person was in 1984, than mm. the average child was in 1984. That's how big the change is, at least on that, on that test. Right. So, so this is a big change. And, um, and, but, you know, is it a surprising change? No. What would we think would happen? We have, if we, over this period of time, that children's opportunities to play has been declining. Play is almost, is by definition creative. It's always creative. Right. <laughs> it's, it is the most creative. You can almost equate creativity and play. Anything that's creative has an element of play in it. At people who are, do creative things, they always talk about, you know, bringing a playful attitude to what they're doing, having a sort of spirit of play about what they're doing. You know, Einstein talked about all of his his uh, creative work in theoretical physics and mathematics as 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 he called it combinatorial play. It's mental play. So play. So you reduce play, you're going to reduce creativity. Moreover, we've changed schooling in such a way. You know, for, you know, uh, and and this change it really began to accelerate in the 1980s. Um, where school became more and more about doing well on multiple choice tests, mm. less and less about writing creative essays and stories and art and making up plays and the kinds of things that used to occur at least with some frequency in school more so than they occur today. So you take away play and you take away what creative activity there used to be in school and you spend your time sort of drilling for tests, and lo and behold, you find that children's creativity goes down. There's no reason on earth that we should be surprised by that. Right, and you also see this extension of school further and further into what used to be, you know, right. for me, for you, um, unstructured free time. Exactly. You know, I have, I have nieces and nephews who are talking about, you know, before they even reached high school, having uh, two or three hours of homework a night, like in, in middle school and um, right. even elementary school age. So that time Perfect. doesn't exist. I mean, like I felt as a, you know, as a boy, I had an abundance of time to play and explore on my own. But, the right. uh, you know, and I, and I hate to sound like a Luddite or make this like an unfortunate, uh, you know, consequence of the time in which we live, but so many more... Um, uh, of activities for unstructured time are passive today, you know, just parking in front of something and, and watching, or, you know, the activity is created almost entirely for the kid. And, and, and a lot of it, you know, with a lot of this video game stuff, not that it's all bad, but it has like a real behaviorism component to it where it's almost just training people to, you know, seek rewards. There was very, very little of that when I was a kid. It was like, you know, if I had free time, my mom would say, hey, you know, there's the woods. <laughs> that was that was it. Right. Today, yeah. everything is so, you know, closely managed in the ways that we've talked about. But even recreation itself has way more structure than it used to have in most cases. And I, I'd even like to hear you weigh in on something like zero tolerance. There has been like a real chilling effect in the last 20 years in elementary, middle, and secondary school around unthinking cause and effect type discipline. You know, there's no yeah. negotiation, there's no flexibility, there's no hearing about, uh, you know, circumstances. It's just like, this is the punishment, this is the crime. And a lot of the playfulness, even in the early ages of school, is something that has been done away with because, you know, kids, I think, are understanding that the consequences are too severe and there's too little flexibility in the discipline process. Yeah, you've said a lot of things there, uh, which I could comment on. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one of the, I think that what you started with, I want to comment on sure. that uh, this idea, you know, creativity um, is suppressed by uh, any concern about immediate judgment. So if you feel like you're being judged, your product, what you're doing is going to be judged in some way, that 
really inhibits creativity. There's a lot of research on that. Uh, there's a researcher, Teresa Amabila, who's done many studies of this sort, you know, having people make collages or write poems or so on under different conditions. One condition, they believe that there's going to be an evaluator who's going to judge it and rank it, and they might even win a prize if theirs is best. And the other condition, they're just doing it anonymously. There's not going to be anybody judging it. There's no prize to be won. Regularly, what she finds is when they're doing it just anonymously, just for the fun of doing it, the product is more creative. And the way they do this, they have judges who don't know where these came from evaluate the creativity of the product. And um, what, and it's study after study with children, with adults, um, the, the feeling of being judged inhibits creativity. Also, this same researcher has interviewed highly creative adults, authors, and so on. And what they say is, what she reported, she actually wrote a book about this, is over and over again, they say, when they're in the process of writing their novel or painting their, their pictures or, create, or composing the music, whatever it is, they absolutely have to bury themselves in it and not think about critics, not think about anybody who might evaluate it, not think about rewards or criticism that will come from it. You just have to be doing it for its own sake in order for it to be a creative product. So what we have done is we have put children into situation where they are more or less always being evaluated, almost always in school and out of school. <laughs> so instead of just going out to play their own games where nobody cares who wins or loses, you know, everybody's trying to do, be their best. They're all trying to have fun, but there's no ranking. There's no trophies. There's nobody being judged about it in that kind of a sense. Uh, but now we put them into adult-directed sports where they're constantly being evaluated who's going to make the team, who's going to be first string, who's going to who's going, you know, which team is going to win and, and who, and in many of the sports are individual kinds of things. So children are in these things and you're supposed to win ribbons and trophies. In, in other words, everything, you know, the great bulk of a typical child's day is in activities that are being in some immediate sense evaluated and judged by adults. In ways that are destructive both ways too. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like this is like one of the talking points of conservative talk radio. Problem is we're giving out uh, too many 11th place ribbons to kids, right. you know, and it is a problem because it's the same problem that you're describing, right, where this right. is something where you come and you get a rank, but it's also a kind of inauthenticity to say right. a kid knows if he's not good at bowling. So do you want to be good at bowling? Do you care about bowling? Maybe bowling's not for you. Maybe that's as far as this exploration needs to go. Instead mm -hmm. of what often young children internalize as insults or being looked down on or talked down to or kind of placated with, right. um, you know, participation trophies. So it, it goes both ways. But you're right. you're right. I mean, I think... Either way you go, the problem of adult, you know, intervention yeah. in that activity. The mistake, in my judgment, is not that we're giving participation trophies. The mistake is that we're giving trophies right. at yeah. all. Yeah. And uh, people should just be, you know, what we've done, you know, psychologists distinguish between intrinsically motivated activities, which really is another way of talking about play, <laughs> and extrinsically motivated activities. Are you doing it for the sake of the activity because you love to Absolutely. do it? Absolutely. Or yeah. are you doing it for some reward outside of that activity? And it turns out that when you're doing it for the love of the activity, there's a lot of research that shows you do it better in the long run. You learn more in the long run. And you are more creative, as I just said, when you're doing it that way. You're pursuing, you're finding your own passion that way. You're discovering your passion. Passion, passion really means doing what you want to do and you, what you want to do well and so on. And, and you're the judge of whether you're doing it well. Maybe at some point you want somebody's judgment about it, but you don't want that at an early stage. And you, and you want it when you want it. You want some, you know, you want, you maybe at some point you say, so, so what do you think? Is this really a good poem? You know, mm. but that's your decision. And also you take it or leave it for what it is. You know, right. maybe this person doesn't think it's a good poem, but yeah, so that's, so that's the, that's, 
that's a lot of what, what that's part of why creativity has gone down. You know, not only we're depriving children of the opportunity to engage in activities for their own sake, which is the situation in which you which really fosters fosters creativity. Well so there were there were some other things that you hit on, and there's one that I do want to comment on. And um, it's possible that you and I disagree on this, which wouldn't be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but the um, I actually am kind of a defender of computer games. I think in some sense that's the saving grace <laughs> today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, um, I think I'm not a player of computer games myself, but I am aware of them. I have seen people who play them, and I've I've read a lot of the literature, the re, the real research studies about computer games. And I'm convinced that computer games, most of the computer games today, many of them, require enormous amount of creativity, and they are a place where young people are free to play. So the same young person who's not allowed out um, to play outdoors, to have real adventures in the real world, can at least have adventures in the virtual world of this of this amazing computer game. And um, and there are rules to the games, but there and there and there's there are adventures involved with them, but they're not competitive in the same kind of sense that an adult directed game is. They're more like how much do you want to achieve in this game and so on. So. I think that, and there's the, what the research shows is that children are actually, young people are learning a lot in computer games. Now, there are studies that show quite reliable that computer games increase IQ. This is, most people don't know this, but there are a number of studies that show this. It's probably, these probably increase IQ more than anything else that a person can do. I would love to see studies. I don't know of any studies indicating whether or not they increase creativity uh, because this is and in fact when kids are asked why do you spend so much time playing computer games their answers tend to be this is one place where there's no adults judging me there may even be adults playing but they don't playing in this multiplayer game but nobody knows who's an adult or who's not I'm as much an authority figure here as anybody else <laughs> And I and this is a place where I can really experience the thrill of really immersing myself some, into something and doing well in it, figuring out, figuring out what I have to do to in this in this virtual space to achieve what I've decided to achieve within this space. And a lot of these games, you sort of make your own choice of what your goals are. So I think that I think a lot of people in our world today. Um, are blaming the computer games for some of this thing, for some of what we're talking about, the decline in creativity, the increase in obesity, the, and so on and so forth. The, um, when we really ought to be blaming ourselves, we adults, <laughs> mm-hmm. for creating a world in which the only way that kids are allowed to play <laughs> is on the computer. <laughs> we don't yeah. let them go out and play in some other kind of way. And then we blame them for being on the computer. We want to limit their computer time. So I don't, I don't have that same feeling. I don't know. There's a lot of myths out there. And, and uh, sometimes people are supposedly referring to research that's showing harmful effects. I've done. I spent quite a bit of time looking up that research, and and it, I, the the research just isn't there to support the kind of negative, uh, and I would use the term myth that we've developed about the harmful effects of being on the computer. On the other hand, I do think that if children and I, and I, and in fact there are surveys that bear this out. If children were really free to go outdoors and play with other kids away from adults, as children are designed to do, mm-hmm. I think many of them would be spending much more time doing that and less time on the computer than is currently the case. I, <laughs> so I, yeah. I think in, instead, of, instead of limiting computer time, doing one more thing to control children, right? <laughs> one more thing to reduce their own freedom of choice, we should be thinking the opposite. Let's expand the menu instead of constricting. I think I agree with everything you just said. I would like to see, and I don't know how this instruction or encouragement takes place, but I would like to see it as a part of a more balanced life that it doesn't just become, and, and you know, 
you spoke to that too. It's not part of a balanced life because, hey, you're not allowed to go outside right. by yourself, unfortunately. And maybe if that was different, um, you know, I, I just drove across the country and back and I visited quite a few alternative schools along the way. And um, at one of the schools, I mean, it was just an amazing experience, this school, um, and so alien from anything that I had experienced as a teacher or a tutor uh, in a public school setting, you know, where you walk in the door and teenagers just come up to an adult stranger, you know, the kind of person that I learned in school I should yeah. stay away from because they're going to make a problem for me one way or another. They'd come right up to me and say, hey, how are you doing? Who are you? Uh, why are you here? Do you want a tour of the school? Uh, it was really an amazing experience, but yeah, isn't that great? There yeah. was one room that was the computer room, and I went in there and I looked. Over, there were no windows, and it certainly, you know, it had an odor. And I said, "These kids sit here all day, you know, and uh -huh. most of them." Uh, and and this is like this is you know an anecdote that speaks to a broader experience and observations that I've had. And and again, I agree with everything you're saying about the benefits of it. I, I just hope that it can become part of a more balanced lifestyle. And I would also like to see right. parents take a, like an active and positive interest instead of just, you know, giving kids phones or iPads and where there are, I mean, you know, games you can download for free on a mobile <clears throat> device. There is a lot of mindlessness out there um, uh, instead of just giving it as, you know, a, a behavior management tool as actually taking an active and encouraging role in what kids are doing and and really, you know, an interest in what kids are learning from doing that. I was when I mentioned that, I know I did throw computer games in there. I'm thinking more passive activities like television. Um, uh -huh. There's a really large YouTube genre devoted to people who want to watch other people play video games. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's interesting. I, I'm certainly aware of that and I don't, I haven't formed any strong opinions about it because I don't actually know enough about it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we are, it, it is sad that in many ways we are a spectator culture. And so if this is happening with video games, like it's happening with everything else, you know, instead right, of, right. Uh, we're a culture of people sitting around watching football and, and on on television rather than going out and playing touch football or you know or that and that and I think that's part of also the change that's occurred in society that um when kids grow up um doing things because um they're put into it and it's a competitive thing and then when they're cut from the team they're no longer going out and doing it and now they become spectators mm. That that may not bear on the question of the video game observers. I think they, I don't know how many of them are just observers and how many of them are observers in the same sense that, you know, anybody who wants to be good at anything, it's good to watch people who are good at it too. And yeah, so, sure. And learn from learn from watching them. I don't I don't know what all the motivations are, but it's true. I mean, it's uh, it's an interesting situation. This is a new technology. I mean, the other thing we sometimes forget about computers and so-called screen time so is we sometimes the critics of, of uh, too much screen time um, are not really taking into account that, wow, there's so many things you're doing on these screens. <laughs> you know, you're, the screen is, is, is a replacement for a book. The screen is a replacement for a telephone. The screen is a replacement for... Um, uh, for for board games, the screen is uh, the screen is serving so many different purposes. What an amazing thing it is, right? Mm, sure. <laughs> and so, you know, if an adult walked into a school and there was this room, and maybe it even had a little smell to it, and everybody was just sitting there reading a book all day long, <laughs> I'm not sure that people would react negatively to that, right? They think, oh, isn't that great? They're reading books, but. <laughs> Yeah, but, point taken. But but yeah. think about it. Reading a book is actually a more isolating, more passive, more unnatural activity than interacting on uh, uh, with a screen. Mm -hmm. It's it's it has fewer dimensions to it. You know, it's a it's totally artificial from a biological point of view. Reading is. 
And yet we value reading because we older people all grew up reading, right? So that's a good thing. <laughs> but now, now there's this new thing. <laughs> and even reading now becomes screen time instead, and it, which has this negative connotation. So if you're reading on the screen, it's negative versus if you're reading in a book, that's positive. So I think some of it, you know, I, I, I don't want to dismiss the concerns that we may have. And I think sometimes there are some certainly there are, there are certainly some kids who get hooked into this and hooked into into it in certain ways. I do think that we would be better off. I have a colleague, somewhat of a friend at Boston College, who uh, is also a psychotherapist, and he does psychotherapy with um, people who are uh, heavily into computer gaming, especially gaming, um, and who might be called addicted to it. And um, he says that most of them come to him because they have really low self-esteem because the culture is so critical of what is their hobby that they become self-critical about it. And they begin to feel like I'm being, I'm really, I must be really lazy. I just spent so much time playing this computer game. So he, he's for, he first starts by, he's a gamer himself. He starts by talking to them, to them about the game they play. And and then they get into the game and explain the complexity of the game and how they're doing. And he said, all right, so number one, we can dismiss the idea that you're lazy. No lazy person would be playing mm. this game, right? right? right. <laughs> this is difficult stuff. And no lazy person would have reached the level that you've reached on it. So let's get rid of lazy. Let's maybe talk about a time management problem here. <laughs> you know, that maybe Maybe you need to think about how you can limit the amount of time as much fun and as much as you're getting out of this. Maybe you want, maybe your concern is that you're not getting some of the other things out of life that you might want. So mm -hmm. it puts it in, it normalizes it. We've all got time management problems. We all spend more time on some things than maybe we should for our own good. Right. And, sure. and, and, and that our family would like us to do and so on. And so it's not a bad thing to think about, but we, we tend to pathologize it. We use words like addiction for, instead of, uh, instead of just, you know, he really likes to do it and he's spending a lot of time doing it. And maybe it would be good if he spent a little more time doing some other things and not just that instead of, uh, but, in, and so we not only, we not only tend to think of it as usurping too much time, but unfortunately, we tend to think of it as somehow evil in itself. Somehow, this is rotting the mind, or it's making, if you're playing a violent game, it's going to make you violent, or inure you to violence, or we come up with all of these negative things, and and these are the things for which there's no evidence whatsoever when you actually look at the research literature on it. Yeah, and I wholly agree with that. We've we've done shows on this before, obviously, because this is a yeah. huge part of education. And obviously, and it's not my responsibility to, you know, to accept or condemn it either way. But if somebody grows up in a really like self-directed education environment where they have a lot of freedom, I think maybe they are better equipped to handle some of the temptations or impulse to mismanage time than somebody who's using it as an escape from all of the other things that they're forced to do in their life. It's, it is right. it's like a respite for, it, right. you know, if somebody spends 50 hours a week doing what other people demand of them, then the 10 hours a week that you could have uh, for something like video games, like you mentioned, like a world that you control, right. yeah, that would be really attractive. And I, yeah, I don't want to use pathologizing language, but possibly uh, addictive right. compared to everything else that's imposed on a young person, you know, day in and day out. But right. I think we, we pretty much almost entirely agree yeah. on their merits. To be continued. Thanks again for listening.
you are getting value out of these presentations, if you are finding them entertaining, educational, and accessible, that's really the triad that I shoot for in every show. Please consider becoming a supporter. You can go to patreon.com slash school sucks. We have three levels of involvement. Each level gets you additional behind the scenes content. We have been producing a ton of bonus material for our supporters since we stopped producing new episodes of the podcast. We have actually been more prolific in content production than we were the last few months of the podcast in these several months since the podcast. So there's a lot more uh, School Sucks, including archives. At our top Patreon level, you can also access a month-to-month membership in our private Unversity community. That is our social media for fans of School Sucks, homeschoolers, autodidacts, We meet three times every week, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, Mondays at 8 Eastern and Wednesdays and Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern, and we do like an hour-long discussion group. It's pretty open forum. A lot of people like being able to get some visibility and support if they feel, uh, you know, isolated where they are. They don't have like-minded people in their families, in their friend circle, in their uh, employment environment. So it's one of the things that I'm most proud of that came out of the School Sucks Project is the university. And if you want a lifetime membership, you have to purchase our Ideas Into Action Summit, which is basically a guide to acquiring, assimilating, and presenting more persuasively new information. And I brought in a bunch of great uh, presenters to teach how to learn, how to integrate new knowledge, and how to be more convincing, more persuasive. That is the Ideas Into Action Summit. Uh, You can find a link for that in every show notes as well. And last but not least, I'm very, very proud of our partnership with Praxis. If you're listening to this as a teen and you're looking for alternatives to college, or you are a parent with a teen and you're looking for alternatives to college for that teen, you definitely want to check out Praxis. I think it is the most exciting and probably the most successful alternative to the college track. Very much focused on celebrating ambition and entrepreneurship in young people. Please enter through uh, the link in the show notes or right at the front page of schoolsucksproject.com. All right, I'll be back soon with more. Thanks again.